Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. When the United States entered World War I in April 1917, it was the start of the Major League Baseball season. Baseball had been America's national pastime for about 60 years at this point, and Fenway Park and what would later be named Wrigley Field were not even a decade old yet. Today, we're going to discuss baseball and World War I with Al Barnes, co-author of the book, Play Ball, Doughboys and Baseball During the Great War. Welcome, Al. Well, thank you, man. It's good to be here. It's always nice to talk with you. Could you give us a brief overview of baseball in America prior to World War One? Sure. Uh, it, it's always important to understand before World War One in this country, there were really only two sports that people followed. One was boxing, professional boxing, and the other was, was baseball. Uh, there was no National Football League yet. Basketball was just something that was starting to be played in, in colleges College football was getting bigger in scale, but but really for for Americans that were sports fans, they really had boxing and baseball. And because of that, the game was everywhere. Every neighborhood had a team. Every every fraternal group had a team. You name it, and and they played it. Uh, they talk about it in the the period at the turn of the century. Guys loading up a wagon with their hometown team and going to the next town over. And one guy would announce, you know, by playing the trumpet that the team was here and they'd play anybody. And so the, the game really kind of spread all throughout the country. And, and we also have to remember that there were two other baseball crazy countries sharing the continent with us. Because in Mexico and up in Canada, they were very fervent baseball players also. How does Major League Baseball respond to the war? At first, not very well. Uh, it, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, the war had started for America in April of 1917 when, when we declared war and entered it. At the time, the season was just starting, and, and all the you know all the baseball players had their spring training, and they had started to play the games. And as the season went on, more and more American men were uh, were drafted and, and joined the service because the, they, we started universal draft in in June of, of 1917, which meant that every man between the ages of 21 and 31 had to register on June 6th and be counted because then they're going to be selected to serve in the military. Well, that was great. And there were people were excited about that and there had draft boards everywhere. But then people started saying, well, geez, what are all these healthy young men that are playing this game, doing out playing a game while my son, my husband, my father is, is in a training camp getting ready to go fight in France? That, you know, what's something's wrong with this picture? And it didn't take long before that, that word to get back to uh, presidents of the of the two major leagues, the American League and the National League, and they realized that they had a real nightmare on their hands as far as publicity went. So so how do you handle something like that? Well, they thought it would be a good idea to show that baseball players on the, on the, at the professional level were just as patriotic as anybody else. And what they did was they brought in sergeants from the Army or from the National Guard and had the, the players do drill before baseball games, marching with baseball bats and showing close order drill. And the people weren't fooled. You know, it, it's good to see Babe Ruth and his buddies out there 
marching with a bat on their shoulder, but that's still not the same as being in the Army. So they realized that it was going to be a problem. And, and because of that, they, they started looking at ways to uh, get the players more involved. Now, the players themselves weren't any less patriotic than anybody else in the country. And, and a number of them just quit the, the their baseball teams and went and enlisted in the military. Uh, one of them had been the, the, the big star of... Uh, of the World Series in, in 1914, a guy named Hank Gowdy. He was the MVP of the series, and, and he quit immediately, went and joined the Army, and turned out to be a, a super soldier. Uh, and a lot of other guys did the same way. But most of the, most of the players were willing to wait their turn to be drafted, if, if you kind of get my drift, that they, they didn't want to be the, you know, they weren't in any rush to go, but they'd go if they had to. Now, some of the, the minor league teams and, and some of the major league teams uh, came up with the idea of having the players go work in war industry. And so a lot of shipyard teams were formed. And, and this was increased even more later on when the uh, Secretary of War, Newton Baker, declared that for uh, baseball, all the players were either going to have to work or fight. So this law came out and said, baseball players, you either have to work or fight. You do have to register for the draft. And, and it is kind of interesting when you look at some of their draft records to see, you know, job occupation, ball player, you know, you know employer, New York Yankees or Boston Red Sox. And so uh, when the work or fight rule came down, a lot of the guys, like including Babe Ruth, went to work supposedly in a shipyard where actually they were more doing publicity work and playing for these big industrial teams. Okay. During World War II, Franklin Roosevelt gives Major League Baseball the green light to continue playing. And he basically makes the case that war workers on the home front need morale boosts like baseball. It seems, though, that you're laying out that in 1917, the military and the government are looking at Major League Baseball differently. Exactly, exactly. They, they were looking at it as a, as a source of manpower. We have to remember that, that when, when the United States joined World War I, uh, there were only about 150,000 to 200,000 men in the Army, and that includes all the guys in all the National Guard across the country. That's just a drop in the bucket. They knew they were going to have to build a, a, a large army fast. And so they needed all these guys between the age of 21 and 31 to, to be in uniform. Now, what that meant was that uh, they started drafting these guys. And so pretty soon you'd see the, the players getting drafted and have to leave their teams. And so in some teams, five or six guys in a week would be sent off to, uh, off to their training camp. And so as, Major League Baseball said the only way we can handle this, you know, is we're going to have to look to shortening the season. And that came along later. But but the important thing is up front when they started taking these guys and putting them in the training camps, it was a strange thing for them because what would happen was if your training camp like was at Fort Dix, you were close to home. Guys were taking the weekend and would go back and play for their team, the Washington Senators, and then go back to being a soldier on Monday morning. Mm. So what does the 1918 season look like? Well, that's, that's a great question because what the 1918 season looked like was a mess. Here you've got half the guys from the 1917 teams are, are wearing you know Navy blue or Marine Corps green or Army khaki, and they're bringing in all sorts of other people to fill their spot. In, and even then, the, uh, the owners and managers of the team don't know how long they're going to keep the players that they do have because when their number comes up, they're gone with a draft. So the, the the solution was they're going to decided by the commissioner of baseball he was going to shorten the season, 
this was done in in, uh, in agreement with the with the uh, Secretary of War saying, yeah, let's shorten the season. We'll have the World Series in September, and then all bets are off until we figure out what we're going to do in 1919. Now, I've heard that the first time the Star Spangled Banner was played before an athletic event was at the 1918 World Series. Is this true? Again, that's a. It's kind of like the origin of the word doughboys. It's one of those legends you really don't know how to follow or believe. It appears that, that they'd played the Star Spangled Banner before ball games as early as the uh, 19th century in some of the games at the end of the 19th century. But the first time it really makes an impact is, as you're right, is the uh, is the World Series. So what it looks like is that it was played for the first time. In the seventh inning, during the seventh inning stretch, and because there were so many sailors and soldiers in uniform attending the game, and they all stood up and stood at attention when the national anthem was played, it became pretty obvious that maybe that was the way to start each game to gather everybody's attention and to show patriotism. Because you have to remember, during World War One, patriotism was a big deal. It was a big deal. Everybody was involved. It was kind of like the precursor for World War II, where everybody collected cans and tinfoil and, and metal and did all that stuff. Well, they were doing the same thing in World War One, And the, the last thing in the world you wanted to have done was be known as a slacker during World War One. So when the soldiers stood up and stood at attention for the national anthem, everybody else in the, in the park got the same idea and did the same. So really, it, that kind of set the stage for starting the game with a, a patriotic display. So tell us about the military service of baseball players during the war. You know, it's an interesting question because so many of these guys, like I said, got drafted or volunteered. uh, By the end of of the war, there were over 247 major leaguers wearing Navy, Marine Corps, or Army uniform. That's a pretty impressive number when you consider that, you know, the total number of professional ballplayers at the major league level was only about 400 and something. At the start, to have 247 of them in uniform is pretty impressive. And, and there were a number of really uh, well-known ballplayers that were uh, were serving in France in the in the front lines. Among them was uh, was Hank Gowdy, who I'd mentioned earlier, who who joined the the army almost immediately after the declaration of war. Uh, another very famous ball player who had a great war record was uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander, the, the famous pitcher for the Cleveland Indians and later for the Cincinnati Reds. Some of the more famous ballplayers were still in training and had barely gotten to France when the war ended. And among them was uh, Christy Mathewson and Ty Cobb, Branch Rickey, the guy who ended up uh, developing the minor league system for baseball, and also the guy who integrated baseball was, was serving in the same unit as uh, as Christy Mathewson and Ty Cobb. They also had, a, a, in that unit, must have been a heck of a unit, um, they had uh, George Sisler, who later became one of the famous hitters who hit 400 in the 30s. For people here in Virginia, uh, they also had uh, Epirixi, who turned out to be, uh, you know, the, for many years held the record for the most wins by a left-handed pitcher and the most losses by a left-handed pitcher. So, And these are all Hall of Famers who actually served in uniform over in France. But we, we don't want to forget that there were also hundreds and hundreds of minor league ballplayers who were, uh, who were in uniform, including a large number of guys from the Negro Leagues and from the, uh, the different minor leagues around the country. Of course, uh, probably the most famous casualty among all of the, uh, the ballplayers was uh, a guy named Eddie Grant, who'd been a, a, 
a steady uh, infielder for the New York Yankees who had just quit baseball and gone back to being a lawyer, of all things. You know, it's hard to picture a, a second baseman for the New York Yankees opening a law firm, but that's what he did. And then war break, broke out, and, uh, and Eddie went over to serve in France. And he was among the, the soldiers who was trying to locate the famous Lost Battalion in the Meuse-Argonne when his unit got hit by artillery fire, and he was killed, making him probably the most famous ball player killed during World War II, World War I, excuse me. And, uh, and in fact, today, there's still outside of Yankee Stadium is uh, the Eddie Grant Highway named in his honor. Do we have any idea how many of these ballplayers were wounded or killed in action during the war? Yeah, it's hard to uh, pin down some of the numbers again, because how do, how do you consider Eddie Grant, who had just retired? But it looks like from, from basic research, it looks like uh, for major leaguers, there were uh, seven, seven major leaguers were, were killed or wounded. Four minor leaguers and two Negro League players were killed or wounded in, in action. Now, this number doesn't count the uh, unfortunate large number who later got hit by the Spanish flu, in fact, which, which killed more, uh, more ball players than the than German artillery did. And I think you already touched on this a little bit, but are there any future baseball stars fighting in the war at this point? Young men who haven't quite hit their peak or been part of Major League Baseball yet? Yes, that's a, a great question. You're, you're right. There were a, a large number of guys who later came along and did did quite well. And, and that includes George Sisler, who I mentioned was a great hitter. But to me, again, because I, I like to, to look at the more, the, the lesser known episodes, there were a couple really neat, I guess you'd call them episodes in the uh, in this. We, while we were researching the book, we found uh, a guy who was serving in, in a motor transport unit and then ended up in Germany during the occupation. He was interesting because he played for, played for his unit team. He was seen over there by, by somebody in, in baseball because they had scouts going over to, to you know, give classes and talk about baseball to the guy serving in the occupation. And this soldier ended up playing one game in the major leagues in the 1920 season and came to bat twice. He played for the St. Louis Browns against the Boston Red Sox. So if you ever remember in the movie A Field of Dreams, uh, I think it was Moonlight Graham, the, the, the guy who had one, one game in the major leagues. Well, this guy actually appears to have been a real-life Moonlight Graham kind of character who impressed somebody playing as a soldier and ended up getting a, a major league contract and playing one whole game as a major leaguer. Very interesting. 77 baseball diamonds were created in France during the war, and an estimated 200 baseball games were played by American troops each day. We have a little bit of evidence here that Douglas MacArthur, then serving with the 42nd Division, might have pitched in one of these games played during, um, I believe, the occupation. And so baseball was clearly a very popular game for many soldiers, but did the U.S. Army do anything to encourage this? Did they supply baseballs? Did they try to kind of organize tournaments? Do you have any information on that? I do. That's a, a, a great topic. I, I wish I knew more about Douglas MacArthur playing baseball because that would have made a great little chapter in the book because, uh, you know, I, I realize he was a pretty uh, athletic kind of guy, and I can almost see him out there pitching for the Rainbow Division team somewhere in the middle of Germany 
the Army and the Navy were incredibly supportive of baseball. They thought that, you know, you can't be a soldier 24 hours a day, especially if you're just in training. And so they encouraged uh, every organization to, to have a team. They arranged with the commissioners of the National League and the American League to have bats and balls sent over to France so that the guys could have good stuff to play with. But but as usual, most of that stuff never made it up to the front lines where the guys really needed the, the R&R time. But there is a story of a uh, of a YMCA captain who actually went into Bellow Wood bringing boxing gloves and uh, and baseballs and baseball mitts and giving them out to the Marines while they're taking breaks in between fighting in Bellow Wood. That not only took some guts, it was pretty pretty clever for a guy to do that. And he uh, the Army realized that it was important to get these guys that, you know, something to take their mind off the, the fighting all the time. And so they actually brought over a, a Hall of Famer uh, who put him in, and he was wearing a white, he was too old to serve in the military. And, and he went around from unit to unit just teaching guys baseball skills and, and lecturing them. And even later, the uh, the Army would fly umpires from one spot to another spot so that they could get a game in between the bigger divisional teams. So uh, again, the military is very supportive of, of athletics for good reason. And, and this continued all the way through, heck, right up till the present day. One of the things that we found when we were working on the book was that you can you can almost see, you know, there's a traditional baseball picture of the team standing around with their bats and gloves and, and all piled in front of them and showing off their gear. We have the same pictures in the National Guard collection of guys in Afghanistan with their bats and gloves and, and the diamonds that they've cut out of uh, out of the wilderness to, so that they can get a game in. The more interesting part of, of the question about all these fields that were made in France and in Germany and in England, because they even had a, a game in England where they played in front of the king and queen of England had uh, came to see an American American baseball game, but. The bottom line was when you read the papers from uh, Stars and Stripes from 1919 and then from the occupation in 1920 and 21, they all are convinced that they have brought baseball and civilized Europe with baseball, that they're going to, you know, this is going to be a hotbed of, of baseball for eternity. And, and it's almost like as soon as they turned out the lights and went home, the French and Germans turned their baseball fields back into soccer fields and back into the games that they knew better. <laughs> And, and and so baseball kind of disappeared. And I think the same thing happened in World War II. And mm. when I was a kid growing up in Germany in the 70s, Germans didn't watch baseball. It, they they really didn't. They, they could never understand it. And they couldn't understand why we liked it so much. I think that's pretty interesting. You mentioned in both world wars, uh, American troops don't pass along that love of baseball to the European allies or to the people they're fighting against in, in these wars. And at the same time, the Europeans don't send cricket or soccer to the United States. So I guess it just wasn't an item of cultural exchange during during those wars. You're absolutely right. I, I think, but when you think about it, here's and here's the dichotomy. You know, you send the Marines and some army are down in the Caribbean during the Banana Wars and even before World War One, and brought their baseball gloves and mitts. And now the Caribbean is the hotbed of baseball. Uh, you know, look, people. There are more players from the Dominican Republic and from Cuba and Puerto Rico. All those places have just mm. became as baseball crazy as we are. But the the Europeans just thought we were nuts and weren't interested at all. Now there was one anecdote where the, uh, and this was a, a very rare case where Americans, when the war ended in 1918, 
there were a lot of Russian prisoners in Germany in prisoner of war camps. And part of the armistice requirements was to send uh, American soldiers in to run some of these camps because the German army is being disarmed. You can't have them guarding prisoners that were once upon a time our allies. So, so you got these bands of little of small groups of 20 and 25 American soldiers and their officers going to these prisoner of war camps in Germany. And of course, they bring along their mitts and bats. So they got something to do in their off time. And so they spend time teaching the Russians how to play baseball. And I guarantee you today there aren't any baseball fields in Russia. So obviously it never translated over from once the prisoners got back to their homeland. Baseball wasn't that interesting anymore. Very interesting. To backtrack just a little bit, baseball in America was segregated during this time period of World War One. So obviously was the military. What do we know about African-American ballplayers? What do we know about the Negro Leagues during the war? You know, uh, it appears just from the research that we did that they were drafted the, the exact same way as the uh, as the white ballplayers were. And, and I've always kind of figured that, that the Army was, was really kind of segregated the same way baseball was. If you were a Filipino or from India or one of those places, you fell into the white category. And so you served in white units. But if you were an African-American or from Africa, when there were a lot of African immigrants in the States that got drafted to, to, for World War One, you were segregated. And so the, there was great diversity, but only to a point. So so the bottom line is a lot of these the Negro League ballplayers got drafted and were serving either in one of the two combat divisions or in the Pioneer Infantry, which was kind of like a combination of combat engineers and Seabees. These guys were supposed to be able to go up front, fight in the front lines, and then build a road. You know, they, so they were kind of like the specialists in that kind of, of service. And, and there were there were like 16 uh, regiments of African-American soldiers serving in the Pioneer Infantry. So there were a lot of opportunities to, to have baseball teams. The great majority of the African-Americans that got drafted ended up in the services of supply, which were the the giant logistics part of the army that, that kept the beans and bullets and bandages heading to the front. Now, one of, and of course, all these units in all these places in France and in Germany had baseball teams. And so they, they had an all-star team of African-American ballplayers from, uh, from the services of supply went to the American occupation zone in Germany and played an all-star team of, uh, of Caucasian ballplayers from the second division. And, and they played a, a three-game uh, tournament. And, and it's really impressive when you think about it. those three games drew 20,000 fans. I mean, so every one of those, you know, that's an incredible number of folks when you consider that they were playing on a scratched-out baseball field, you know, in the middle of nowhere of Germany. And, and it was an incredible tournament because the, uh, the first game, the Negro League All-Stars won. And they were led by a guy named Jimmy Lyons. I was fascinated by studying his Lions because not only was he the hitting star of the first game, game two starts the next day, and he's pitching. So he's pitching for the team, and he's doing a good job, but he finally got tired, and the, uh, so they brought in a reliever for him, and the, and the uh, second division All-Stars won the second game. So now it goes back to being one game to one game, so now it's time for the third game to break the tie. And they played right, right away. So they played three games in two days. And Lions, again, is the hitting star. 
Uh, and it got to the point where anything he did, everybody was applauding him because he was just a phenomenal ball player. Now, the uh, second division stars beat the Negro League stars, but it was such a close game that everybody said, yeah, this this is an incredible thing. And, and I kept trying to find out more about Jimmy Lyons. And it turns out, I, I finally found him in the uh, Hall of Fame records up in Cooperstown, where he he was listed as a member of the, uh, quite possibly, the best outfield in all of professional baseball's history with two other Negro League stars. They're supposed to be the fastest, you know, uh, most efficient outfielders in the game. So, so this guy was a heck of a ball player. I, I can only wonder what, you know, what happened to him afterward? Because he he went back to the Negro Leagues and then he just kind of disappears. And while we're while we're on the the topic of 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 the unusual and the people who weren't allowed to play baseball in the American and the National League, we can't forget that the women were part of this too. And if you know everybody's favorite movie is a League of Their Own, well, over in Germany in 1920 they had a game where the American nurses had put together a baseball team, not a softball team, but the American nurses put together a team of baseball players and they played the ladies from the YMCA who were serving over in Germany. So they had this one game that was that they played in Germany on a special field that was made for for them and it was so big and so well reported. It was actually in the New York Times reported the results of the game. And the, and the Army nurses beat the YMCA ladies in, in a seven inning game. And, and I've always kind of thought that maybe this was one of the seeds that when World War II, when they started the uh, Ladies Professional Baseball League that harkened back to these ladies might have been the pioneers that actually set the stage for having uh, women playing baseball and not just softball. Wow, very cool. Final thoughts, the legacy of World War One on American baseball. I think the legacy is that baseball and, and, and the military go well together. They always have. Uh, if you look at World War II, you know, everybody played. Uh, Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and Yogi Berra and all these guys, uh, they were, you know, they didn't, they actually went into uniform. They didn't use the, uh, they realized that not many people fell for the old, well, he's working in war industry subterfuge. And so a lot of the, uh, a lot of the ball players in World War II, you know, went right into the military and didn't even hesitate because the path had been set for them by guys, you know, if you can get Ty Cobb and Christy Mathewson into a uniform and serving their country, it's kind of hard for anybody else not to fall in line with that. And and I think the, the legacy also falls in onto the Hall of Fame. In 1932, when they started the Hall of Fame and elected the first five members, you know, they elected Honus Wagner and Babe Ruth and Walter Johnson and Ty Cobb and Christy Mathewson. Well, two out of the five were, had been American soldiers during the war. So, I mean, that's 40% of the first class in the Hall of Fame had been Doughboys. And I think that kind of set the stage. We're saying, you know, th- there's a place in, in the Hall of Fame for, for soldiers, and there's a place in the Army for ballplayers. Well, thank you so much, Al, for joining us and talking to us about World War One and baseball. Can you repeat the name of your book? Yeah, I, I can. Man, the book is called "Play Ball: Doughboys and Baseball During the Great War," and it was co-written by uh, Sam Barnes, my son, and Peter Belmonte, and I. And, and we had a good time doing it because when you take three baseball fanatics and three military historians and you roll them together, 
it was just a topic we couldn't let go. Finally, the publisher had to say, that's enough. You guys stop finding more stuff. You got to put something on paper and we got to put this out. But it really was a lot of fun to write. And, and frankly, it's a, I think it's a fun book to read because we tried to stay away from just listing statistics and tried to get more to the human side of these guys. Well, thanks again, Al. And we'll look forward to talking to you again. My pleasure, Amanda. Anytime. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.